invite you to turn this morning to Psalm 149. Psalm 149. It comes to comes to December. Usually at some point I start asking the Lord if there would be a particular text or something he would have me put before the congregation. It's not always the case, but I was in prayer a couple of weeks ago, a little over two weeks ago, and reading Psalm 149, and was very much impressed by a portion here that I want us to hang our thoughts upon for this morning, but God willing, you will find reason to hang your heart and soul upon it for the rest of the year. So we'll get back to Hebrews in due course, God willing, next week and proceed in our study in Hebrews. But we want to read Psalm 149. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's pray once again, beloved. Let's seek the Lord one final time for his help to see clearly in his word and to hear from him. God, we thank thee for those here this morning that know they are members of Zion, that know that by grace, through faith in Christ, they have this standing, this citizenship, this position, this privilege of being the people of God. Lord, we would ask that thou wilt strengthen our knowledge of what we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that thou wilt help us this morning amidst all that is going on in our lives, whatever any particular individual is facing or feeling or fearing, that thou wilt come with thy word, despite the weakness of this instrument, despite the difficulty we have as men and women and boys and girls to hear aright, we pray that the Holy Ghost will be here this morning to minister the Word effectively in all of our lives. God, bring forth fruit from Thy Word. Come graciously, powerfully, mercifully, and memorably to us today. And we pray that Christ, only Christ, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, will be praised in this place. Prepare us then for the table as well, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation, I stand before you this morning with a desire to 
present my heart for you for 2023. My desire is, I might even say my resolve, is that before God, by God's grace, nothing I do in ministry to you this year will deviate from the objective of bolstering, fortifying, augmenting, revitalizing, and invigorating your joy in Jesus Christ. I want you every single week to experience something of the grounds that you have to rejoice in your God and in your Savior. Every promise rehearsed, every doctrine expounded, every commandment explained, every exhortation presented, every comfort articulated, and whatever tone used, and you know that that can vary with me, and however the sentences are constructed, my hope is your joy in Christ, your joy in Christ. That has been pressed upon me by a particular verse in this psalm, which we'll get to in just a moment. 2023 will bring sin. It will. It may even bring a form of straying in your life, and it may also bring reasons for you to sorrow that you haven't anticipated as yet. Your heart will betray your well-meaning desires. Your circumstances will challenge your well-intentioned ambitions. But if you get yourself to the house of God, I resolve to fight for your joy, to put before you reasons to be joyful in Christ. And this morning I want, as weak as you may feel yourself to be, and as weak as I am aware in and of myself, I want, I want to present before you Grounds for joy, not just today, but every day of this year. And I want you to see the tools you have to fight, if I can use that language, fight for your joy this year. Not by doing what you can, but first and foremost by believing unchangeable truths. Now, you are commanded to evidence joy, not by me, but by the Spirit of God, Philippians 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. That's a commandment. It's an exhortation to you. Rejoice in the Lord. And I could get up this morning and I could take Philippians 3, verse 1, and I could preach it and say, Beloved, rejoice in the Lord. And I could explain all the ways in which you should do that, how that should be exercised in your life. But while spiritual successes are wonderful, genuine salvation is even more wonderful. What do I mean? One fluctuates, the other is fixed. One is uncertain, the other is unwavering. We love spiritual success, but the ground of our joy is even more wonderful. There are things about you and me that do not change because of what we have in Christ. And this is precisely what the Lord Jesus was getting at when he stood before his disciples. And they're rejoicing because the devils are subject to them, and he warns them, rejoice not that the devils are made subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is he saying? Is he saying that it's wrong for you 
It's wrong for you to have spiritual successes and then to rejoice in those successes, to, to rehearse them before God in prayer, to sing praises to Him for what He has accomplished. No, that's not what He's saying. But the reality is, we don't get to traverse this world with constant experiences of success. We don't. For various reasons. Sometimes we need to be humbled. The Lord has put His finger on your life and lay you low. For various reasons that perhaps only He knows about on various occasions. What is important here is, is to see that there are reasons to rejoice no matter what this year brings, no matter how it pans out. The Lord wants you to rejoice. He wants you to wake up every day and rejoice. So the text that I'm leaving before you is found in Psalm 149, verse 2. And the latter part of that verse begins, Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Just really, we're pulling our thoughts around that latter part of the verse. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. You know when you read your Bible sometimes and there's a text that you know, but it feels at times like you're reading it for the first time. Like it hits you, it jumps off the page. You think, this is great. And... I know I've read this before, I know it's there, but it's never really kind of grabbed me and, and made me feel like the power of the truth. But as I was in prayer, reading over this psalm, praying to the Lord, I read through this, offering the text and prayer to God, and came to this, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king, and I thought, that's great, <laughs> that's so good. That no matter what, that this is, this, is, this is something that we get to do and to, to be as well. And so I want to kind of lay it before you as the, we can call it a model text for 2023, whatever you, you like to call it, but just setting the tone for the year. That's my desire. Setting the tone for the year. And I've titled the message, Impregnable Joy. Impregnable Joy. Because, not because of some strength in you or in me, not because of our own fleshly developed defense systems that will keep us from ever feeling anything but joy, but because there are truths that don't change no matter what this year brings. And that's what I want you to hang your, your heart upon, your, your soul upon, your thoughts upon, and to go away and say, yes, yes, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. This, these things are true no matter what? And we're going to see this in very, three very simple headings because of our position, our privilege, and our potentate. You can see it here in this text. So first of all, because of our position, we have this impregnable joy because of our position. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Now, of course, this is written in the Old Testament. And you, you have to ask yourself, at least I'm asking myself, how is it that Israel got to be in this position? How is it that they became so privileged? What was it? What did it take to become a child of Zion? 
And we can learn much by asking that question. I'm not going to delve into everything, but there are two things here. Two things. One is election, and the other is adoption. Election and adoption. Again, There are all sorts of areas where we could go to here, but my focus, and I think the whole idea of the text, is to for you to think about the things that don't change, because that's that's how you that's how you continue in a constant joy by the things that are constant, not by the things that are changing, like your feelings and emotions and your circumstances. So, election. First, we have been elected. We have been elected to become a child of Zion requires election. Now, God expresses this in various ways to His ancient people. For example, in Exodus 19, you have it kind of touched on there, and I'll, I'll read a number of verses here, but Exodus 19, verse 4, "...you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself." There's a favor there, an electing favor. It's not explicit, but it's certainly implied that there are people that are not favored, that that are not under this care, this experiencing what we might term electing love. They're not there, but, but he's looking to them and he's saying, you are. And I bore you an eagle's wings. When you get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and following, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. How, how are you a holy people, a separated people, a distinct people? How? The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are upon the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. There it's more explicit, isn't it? Before they're entering into the promised land and they have these ideas, you know, it's a temptation. You get to a certain point in your life, Maybe you're getting that big promotion and people are giving you all sorts of commendation, what's going on in your life, and you can begin to, be, to believe the things that people are saying in a way that is unhealthy. And so as they stand on the brink of the promised land about to enter in, there's, certain, there's a certain danger to entering in to all that is laid up before them where they imagine to, to themselves, there must be something special about us. We must impress God in some way. And he's reminding them, no, no, but God hath chosen thee. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee. And that's the reason. That's what makes the difference. In Amos 3, verse 2, you have it there as well. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And then Psalm 135, verse 4. The Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. So you start studying Israel and you, you recognize that, that this, this favor, this position, this, this depiction of being children of Zion is not something that they earned or acquired by their own labor, but it is depicting a wonderful truth of election. And this, this is true for us. If we are children of God, it is not through something we have accomplished. It is not what you do or what you have done. This is something you are. The nation of Israel only dimly reflected this truth, to be, to be quite honest with you, in comparison to the incarnate Israel. Yes, the incarnate Israel. Never, never, never lose sight of it. Jesus is the incarnate Israel. It is union to Him that makes the difference. That's, what, that's what's being taught there when you read Matthew 
2, verse 15, Out of Egypt have I called my son. This is Israel who's been called out of Egypt, but it's Christ, and it is union to him that makes the difference. And so, when that gets, let's say, mined out a little more in the epistles of the New Testament, you come to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, familiar to many of you. He hath chosen us, God hath chosen us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Yes, he still has an Israel. He still has people that are his people. But the distinction is this. They are in Christ. Now, they always were in Christ in, in a certain sense. You can't be saved, separated from Christ. Never. Not Old Testament or New. You can't. But it becomes more clear here that this is how, this is how it's worked out. This, this electing, this God's purpose to elect the people to himself is kind of in a shadow form shown to Israel, but in a clear form shown through Christ. And so it is in Christ that we are truly chosen. God's election of you in Christ, and we're told it takes place before the foundation of the world, which is another way of saying before you have opportunity to try to impress God, which of course you wouldn't do. But if you get ideas that maybe, maybe I could impress God with my performance, he says, no, no. Before the world's even constructed, before I speak it into existence, there's already an election. There's an eternal choice that has been made, as it were. I say has been made. When you use that language, it's like it's happening. It's never happened. It always was. <laughs> There's an eternal election that has always, it's always been. Try to get your head around that. But this means, and here's the point, you can be joyful. Listen to me, child of God, because some of these things are very familiar to you. You, you know this. I'm kind of going over old ground. You say, preacher, I know all this. But, but, but let, me, let me just kind of push in the significance of that a little more. This means you can be joyful because your position as the elect of God is as robust as divine omnipotence. It's as robust as the very nature of God himself. And that means the ground of your joy, the ground of your joy when it is considering this, I am the elect of God. I am a child of Zion. I belong to my God. It's not going to change. It's not going to change. You're going to face whatever this year throws at you, and this, this will be true every morning. This will be true every evening. This will be true wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever's coming down your way. This is going to be true. So we have been elected. I love that. You should love it too. Yes, let the children of Zion be joyful. Who are these children of Zion? They are people elected from before the foundation of the world, chosen in Christ. It gets expressed in time. How is it expressed? That, that you, you, you'd rest in Christ. You, you love Him. You, you trust in Him. You believe in Him. You depend on Him. You worship Him. You're, all your hope is grounded in Him. But also we have been adopted how do people become children of Zion? Not just by election, but by adoption. Yes, because despite this election that we've considered briefly already, 
We're still born into this world as sinners, enmity with God, right? There's a problem between you and God, me and God. So we are, we are fallen. We are born to Adam's fallen race. Our father failed us. Adam put no spiritual roof over our head, no spiritual food on our table, no spiritual guidance for our lives. He left us spiritually impoverished. What can someone left like that do? They have no salvation in themselves. No hope. But again, you, you may want to flip over to Ephesians 1, just especially if you don't have it memorized, because I'm going to look again at language that is found there, not just in verse 4, but verse 5. We have been adopted. So we've seen, He hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It says in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Now that, again, that's, that's got a lot in there. But note this, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, that's what I want to underline, it is by Jesus Christ to Himself. We are brought to God, we are made children of God by Jesus Christ. Now the question you ask yourself then is, how? How did He do it? How did he do it? Did, did he pay a great price of, of money? Did he present before God all this gold? No. We are not redeemed with corruptible things. We're not. But by the precious blood of Christ. That's what redeems us. That was, what is what makes the difference. And so, Jesus Christ takes Adam's place. He becomes the second man, as it were, the last Adam. And the adoption, adoption always comes at a price, doesn't it? Always comes at a price. You don't adopt children without there being certain costs involved. And so it was with Christ. Listen, he embraced a covenant that placed him as the federal head of his people. The federal head of his people. He takes this responsibility. The federal head, the, the head of all the people that God has chosen. And that makes certain demands of him. It requires on him weighty obligations because it means he has to become a man. God become a man and live the life we fail to live, to uphold the law, to obey constantly, not just when everyone's watching, not just in public view, but behind the scenes, every day, all the time, faithfully doing what the law demands. And he takes it. He says, yes, I will bear this. I will bear this. I will take on all this weight of living perfectly for my people. But not just that, not just a life of perfect obedience, but a substitutionary death because there must be payment for the sin. There must be judgment upon the unrighteousness and the rebellion against God. There has to be a payment. And either you make it yourself you have one who stands in and says, I'll do it for you. And that's what Jesus Christ did for the elect, for these children of Zion, for those that are chosen. 
He says, yes, I will step in there. I will take that responsibility. I will be their federal head. I will represent them. I'll be responsible for all that is necessary. And he did it. That's, That's what it's saying then. Having predestinated us onto the adoption of children, not by the love of God, purely, right? So that's, that's the kind of social gospel you'll hear sometimes. God is love, and you're predestinated onto the adoption of children by the, just the, the benevolence of God, all right? God's benevolent, and so He makes you your children. We're all God's children. doesn't matter where we've come from, what we've done, whatever. We're all God's children. Not true. Not true. It requires Jesus Christ. It demands the incarnation. It demands his perfect life. It demands his death. It demands his resurrection. It demands him taking place, representing us at the right hand of the Father, being king over this people. All of this is necessary. Absolutely crucial. None of it can be left out. So it's not just through some airy-fairy idea of love. It is love that is, that is manifested through the work of the Son of God. It's not just love in some, just some idea of love. But it is grounded on something, something secure. You, you might wonder, wonder how, how is he going to, I mean, why would he adopt me? Because he has chosen you. And then he has made provision. Christ does everything. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes when, when children are adopted, they're adopted because of, you know, there's, there's some appeal made or something else that tugs on the heartstrings and, and people are moved then to adopt. Perfectly fine. But, but that God... God other times we're adopting, we don't, you know, people don't know what they're adopting. They have no idea. They have no idea what the character is or what the nature is. They're just hoping everything will work out. But God knows. God knows. <laughs> God, God knows. These are my enemies. By nature, they are enemies. They're sinners. They rebel against my law. They have no inclination of love towards me. They despise, blaspheme, hate, reject Doubt. So, 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 what does he do? Does he does he gather us, adopt us, and and then leave us sort of to be to be these monsters in his family? No, no, no. He does what fathers do. Fathers instruct, and discipline, and disciple, and help, and encourage, and prompt. To that which is right and good. And this is what he does. But again, again, God does it in a way that we, we can't do. We can't do. Right? Even us parents here, we don't just like, you know, like our, our children aren't cattle that we just drive in the right direction, right? You just get the cattle prod and just make sure they go in the right. That doesn't work. Doesn't work. And if it works, it may work for a time. But God has so ordained things that even you as parents, you don't have that responsibility and power. You're, you're taught that you're still to be dependent. And so you instruct and disciple, and then you run to your Father in heaven, and you say, Lord, please, let it take. Please, please let it sink in. Do a work. Well, 
This is what God is doing. He wants, again, you look at Ephesians 1 verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So, every Christian here, if I said to you, do you desire to be more holy this year? It would be a mark of grace that you would say, yes, preacher, of course. I desire to be more holy, though I'm a little hesitant to say it because I look back on 2022 and I wonder, really? I mean, am I making any progress whatsoever? Maybe we have to look a little further back. You have to, you have to go back a little further. Go, don't just look at one year. Look, go, go back maybe five years or ten years and see. Are you, are you, are you making any headway? Reminds me of when we were learning Greek and you turn in your textbook and every, every chapter just opened up like a fog before you. You know, you're trying to like, I have no idea what this chapter is saying. And every chapter almost was the same. You're looking at these new rules and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. And our teacher, Reverend Nelson, he said to us, look, look, this, this is the way to encourage yourself. Don't ask yourself, do I understand this chapter that I'm just starting? Go back two or three chapters and ask yourself, do you get that more than you did when you first opened up that, that chapter then, you know, two or three weeks ago? Do you understand more? And usually, usually, <laughs> if, you're, if you're trying at all, you know, you go back two or three chapters and you go, yeah, I, I, I think I get that now. <laughs> I, I, it's sunk in. So when you initially opened it, it was, it was like, just again, no, I can't understand this. You go back two or three chapters and say, yes. And so then you can say, well, I must be progressing. I must be. I must be. Each time this happens, I go back two or three chapters and I get it. Something's sinking in. Well, the Christian life's a little the same. You look, look back one year and it's like, I don't know if I see much of a difference, but go back a few years. And, you just, you know, and the fog lifts and you realize, yes, yes, God is doing a work in my life. He is. And it's Him that is doing it. This is the encouragement. Because as you desire to be more holy, this is not by your own strength. He, he has a plan that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's His plan. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So He is working on that. It has its great fulfillment at the end. When you're glorified, okay, when this vile body will be changed and be made like onto his glorious body, all that awaits us. But he doesn't leave it as some kind of thing that is happening way out there and has, we've no kind of experience of it now. He is progressively working in our lives. He is, he is working, changing us more and more. Boys and girls, he is changing you. And parents, note the changes in your children. Note it. Commend them when you see that things are sinking in and they're beginning to get it. Encourage them because the Lord is doing the same thing. We are able to look and say, yes, he is doing something in my life. And it is evidence again that I am adopted. So, as adopted children, as a recipient of saving grace, I want you also to joyfully embrace his sanctifying grace this year. I embrace it. Not as something I must do, though there are things you must do. But I want, you, I want you to find your joy in He is doing this work. He is doing it. And so you wake up every morning and, and you ask, is God going to take a day off and sanctify me today? No! No! So, <laughs> I can mean all sorts of things. I mean, you go out to the car and you, you're about to you know, head to work and you look and you've got a flat tire. And you're like, Really? Of all days, like I have a meeting to be at, there are people with this, and you, you're, you have that temptation. 
Why, Lord? And you know, you start questioning. He is working. He is working in your heart. He is not taking the day off. He is, he is pressing in patience and experience and ultimately hope into your heart and life. So he, he, he's going to do that this year. You're going to have it. You may have it in the very near future, just around the corner. So joyfully embrace. Joyfully embrace what he's doing. He is doing a great work. Again, if you look at Ephesians 1 and you look at verse 6, why is he changing you? Why is he adopting you? Why is he doing all this? To the praise of the glory of his grace. So again, it's, it's not for you just to receive it, is it? It's that you might then praise. This is my point. I want you to, to, to be joyful. Joyful. I want you to have a kind of joy. That's, this is my point. Like, there are groans, there are reasons, there are truths, so that your joy is impregnable. Okay? That's, that's, that's where you want to get to. And your joy is. It's just whether or not you'll embrace the grounds of your joy. Whether you're going to look at the trinkets that the devil offers and say, that will make me joyful. I'll be more joyful when the stock market takes a turn. No. I'll be more joyful when X, Y, Z. No, 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 no. Those things change. And God is wiser than all of those things. No matter what happens, you have grounds for joy that is impregnable. If you just believe it, receive it, not work on it, just, just believe it. Believe these things to be true. So to the praise of the glory of His grace, yes, He's adopted me, He's elected me, He's adopted me to the praise of the glory of His grace. Yes, let me praise Him for His grace. You're elected and adopted for the praise of God. God is going to make you praise Him. Yes, He's going to make you praise Him, right? He will. Sometimes He'll lay you low so you want to cry. But then you'll see something of his goodness, and then you'll cry again, but you'll cry because he's so good to you. And he'll do it. He'll lavish his grace on you so abundantly that you cannot do anything but praise him. All right, so I hope, hope we get that. That's, that's our position. Secondly, our privilege. Our privilege. There are privileges for us. You go back to Psalm 149. Since we are children, it implies at least two things. At least two things I want us to think about. Communion and community. Communion and community. I want us to think about this just for a moment. God is our Father. Let the children of Zion, children have a Father. And you have a Father. And when Christ speaks of you as His sheep, and God as our Father, what does He say? He tells us in John 10, 29, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Why does a father keep his children in his hand? Why? We talk about letting our children, you know, grow up and find their own way and find their feet and all of that's part of growing up for sure. But, but mercifully, <laughs> mercifully, this is not what God does. You know, we're, we're, always, we're always in his hand. Why? Well, obviously to protect us. He's doing that. But also to keep us close to him. I mean, if we're in his hand, we're not far from him. Right? So, he is keeping us there from his hand. He wants us to be near to him. This, these sheep for whom Christ shed his blood are in the Father's hand. They're being kept close to the Father. So, 
this year, you're not fighting for God's fellowship. Enjoy God's fellowship. You're not, you're not setting, out, setting, setting out for the year and saying, oh God, I'm going to do, I'm going to be a better Christian, I'm going to do this. And, you know, because you know, you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. You will fall flat on your face before the end of the week. All right, it's just that we know it. We know it. And, and, and should we, should we impress ourselves? God help us, right? <laughs> if we manage to impress ourselves, God help us because we're even worse. Or even worse condition. I'll get to the end of the week or end of the month or the end of the year and say, I did all right this year. Good me. Well done. Pat myself on the back. Repent. Repent. You have no idea. You have no idea. You have such a skewed understanding of yourself and you don't know God. Right? But God, God doesn't need to be impressed this year. He doesn't. Not by you. No, Christ did that. Christ did that. Christ did not die on the cross for you to obtain God's favor. He died on the cross for you to enjoy God's favor. Now you keep that in mind. Don't deviate from that. Don't fall into natural works righteousness. Don't start offering your Cain's offering. No. No, come, come on the ground of the shed blood. I, I don't need to impress him. The Lord Jesus did that for me. He obtained God's favor so that I can enjoy God's favor. I don't need to obtain it. So that means, you know, simple ideas like, I don't have to read my Bible, I get to read my Bible. I don't have to pray, I get to pray. This is not something I'm trying to impress God with, but it's something I get to do. I'm in the Father's hand, he, and He wants me near. He, he has me there because He wants me to be close. He wants me to be close. So simple, but just, just don't ignore Him. Just don't ignore Him. If you don't read your Bible, you're ignoring God. That's all matter what you do. If you don't pray, you're ignoring God. You don't want to be in that place. This is communion. Communion. Fellowship, Christian. Yes. Wake up each day and say, there's forgiveness with thee. There's forgiveness with thee today. And so, whatever is in the past, I can, I can enjoy today and get a promise from God. I can lift up the word and read Spurgeon's checkbook or whatever it is and say, yes, that's for me. That is for me. Praise God. Christ has earned it for me. Our communion. Also our community. Our community. There's a community. Children. It's not child. It's children. There's plural here, right? And as we think about community, I want to see it in sort of two sub-ideas. Hospitality and loyalty. Hospitality and loyalty. And this is where if there's any real application I'm driving something home for you to take away, it's, it's here. It's something for you to pick up on. Like, my, my wife is an only child. And when I first met her, she would always lament about being an only child. Right? Melanie was, you know, oh, you're so lucky you have a sister and all the rest of it. And everyone who has siblings is thinking, yeah, right? <laughs> it's not, it's just be careful. Be careful what you wish for, you know? <laughs> It uh, can be challenging. Family can be challenging. So it's good to have siblings. I'm not saying against it. I'm just saying it can be challenging. We know it. And, and yet, and yet, you know, once you're saved, it doesn't matter whether you're an only child or not, you immediately have brothers and sisters. Isn't that wonderful? Like God brings you into a family. You're children of Zion. What do you mean all these, all these people are my brothers and sisters? Yes, they're all my, 
you're brothers and sisters. So I get to look at you who are saved and I say, you're my brother, you're my sister. And I can go from Australia to America and any land in between and I can say that these people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and are washed in his blood, they are my siblings, spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters. And in many ways, closer to them than the flesh. That's not me saying that, it's the Lord Jesus. He said that, didn't he? Oh, your, your, your mother and your brothers are here. He that does the will of my father, the same. These, these are my mother. This is my mother, my brothers and sisters and so on. We do the will of the father. So we, we, have, we have a community. And I want to encourage you to think about this, as I say, hospitality. These are your people. Again, it's not something you have to do, you get to do. And I, I encourage you to see the breadth of your family. Something we were remarking on, Melanie and I recently had some folks over and, and they were, let's say there was a, a variation. Because sometimes what we do is, maybe there's a new family that have, have come in and we want to you know, welcome them and invite them and we, we bring them. And we bring another family, sort of similar age, and we bring them together. You can see the logic behind that, can't you? You're sort of trying to make connections with people that, you know, may be in a similar stage of life, right? It makes sense. Only, only, (laughs) that they're going to naturally gravitate to one another in the church anyway. That's who they're going to naturally gravitate. Parents with young children are going to gravitate to other parents with young children, generally speaking. And it's wonderful then to, to bring in seniors, let's say, with some young people and, and see the mix. That's, that's even more precious. Believe me, try it out. Try it out. Try it out. Say, well, there's a family or there's a couple. There's a young, young guy, young girl. I have them over. And then let's bring, let's bring these, these old friends, older friends, let's say, <laughs> not to offend anyone, ageism and all the rest of it, but, you know, just get the mix of the generations. Pull them together. It's, it's, it's really good to see. We were just talking about that, and it was wonderful to see it. You know, this community, beloved, community, community, I I hope you see it, is is really important. Sometimes people come to the church looking for money, right? They come with their big sob stories, and they come, and they call up, and they ask, and bother the office, or me, or whatever, looking for money, right? It's always sometimes veiled in some big story, or some other supposed intention, but really what they're looking for is money. And I pity them because they don't understand community. They don't understand community. Because those of you who are given to community, you serve the community, and a byproduct of that is when you're down. It will be the natural thing for people to say, Brother so-and-so's what? He's in dire straits. That happened? Then uh, let me go over. Can I, can I bring a meal over? Can I, can I do anything? Whatever. It's just natural. When you invest in the community, Actual byproduct is people actually care about you. No, that means that you have to see that community, invest in that community, and those are the people that, when if something bad happens, they're going to immediately turn and say, "Yes, we're right there on their doorstep to help." And then when you're gone, when you're gone, finally, you're the one they miss. See, a healthy community is not one you make demands of. 
or who you make requests from. Health community is one you serve in whatever way you can, according to your gifts and abilities. And then others, naturally, will be there for you, and they will miss you when you pass. But also loyalty, loyalty. Children, let the children of Zion, the children of Zion, sort of like thinking about this. What does it mean, children of Zion? There's a loyalty there, isn't there? There, there ought to be, there ought to be a loyalty. And you know, one of the saddest things is to see a lack of loyalty in the body of Christ. <sighs> there's, there's some visitors here this morning, <laughs> and they're from another church, and I'm going to say something that comes from their pastor a few years ago. I heard him talking about a sense of covenant community. community. And I never forgot the way he put it. And I think I've shared this with you before. Because he was basically saying, you know, go on, brother. Slap me if you want. But I'm going to love you anyway. Doesn't matter what you do. I will love you. Because we're brothers. You know, it's, it's, it's maybe exaggerated slightly. It's not like we're going up to each other. I hope you're not after the service. You're not going, hey, brother, give me a slap. <laughs> I hope you'll not do that. But the idea is, the idea is, because this happens when the heat is on. Some of you work in high-pressure environments. You know it. You know it. Sometimes there's high pressure. And you're in there together. You start shouting at each other and screaming at each other. And, you're, and it, gets, it gets a little heated. It gets a little heated. You don't go into warfare and you talk to each other like you're sitting playing cards. It gets hard, and sometimes you're shouting and you're yelling. Even those of you who play team sports, you understand this. You don't whisper across the field. You, you yell. You start yelling and yelling orders and come on. It takes everyone. Sometimes in God's house, in the work of God, sometimes you get a little heated. But, but, you don't take offense. You don't say, oh, he said an unpleasant thing to me. I mean, if he did and you're upset about it, go to him and say, brother, you said that. Did he mean this? And then you say, no. Will you forgive me? And, and that's how it works. That's how it works. And we don't have that today. It's, it's, very, it's very rare. Right? It's almost it's like gone with the dodo. You know, it's almost extinct. You know, where, where is it? You know, because we have the privilege. We have a privilege of hopping into our, our cars and driving 40 minutes to another church, another community. It doesn't know. I go over old ground. No, 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 no. Well, the devil come in. Well, the devil come in to Faith FPC this year and start trying to get people to squabble and fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a matter of if. It's when. It's going to happen. If it's not already happening, it's, it's real. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, be on the alert. Suppress your stupid pride. And give God the glory by saying, Brother, sister, I will love you no matter what. You're washed in the same blood I am. And we owe everything to him. Everything. You know, sometimes we'll forgive our, our, our blood family, and someone might do something lesser in our church family, and we can't forgive them. It's not meant to be that way. So, thirdly and finally, because of our potentate, we also have a great king here. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Joyful in their king. Oh, he has done so much for them. Hasn't he? You know, last week I preached from John chapter 1. Took two messages and 
looked at, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And after, I think it was a morning message, I was in discussion with a brother, and we were, he started mentioning you know, some of the titles in John chapter 1, and I started mentioning others. I said, yeah, it says this, it says that. I said, you know, that would be a great study. That would be a great study. John won the titles. Well, you know, it is. I'm not going to, it's not a study here. I'll just mention them to you. There are ten titles in John 1 for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Again, verse 1, he is called God, and the Word was God. Verse 9, light. That was the true light. Verse 17, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Verse 29, behold the Lamb of God. Verse 38, Rabbi, what seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? Verse 41, he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah. Verse 49, Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Verse 49, thou art the King of Israel. And then finally, you have verse 51, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There's a whole Christology right there. Right there. Wonderful study for someone who wishes to give themselves to do a 10-part series on the titles of Jesus Christ from John chapter 1. It'd be great. And every one of them is packed with its own particular comfort. And every one is grounds for joy. But there's a particular significance to Christ as King. He is the King of His people, the King of Israel. Now, when you read through John's Gospel, you'll find that there are two mistakes that happen in thinking about the kingship of Christ. First, they want to use him. They want to use him. You find this in John chapter 6, at the feeding of the 5,000. And it tells us after he feeds the multitude, whatever thousands, it was more than 5,000, thousands upon thousands of people there that he feeds. It tells us in verse 15, Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. And you find out the next day the motivation. It's, it's, it's a social gospel. It's great. This guy provides free food. Let's follow him around and he'll provide all that we need. Right? That's using the king. But there's also the fact they want to kill the king. In John 19, verse 12, remember when the Jews, their interaction with Pilate, from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. So, the one side, one want to make him a king, and the others, they're trying to prevent him from being king. The thing is, they can't do either. You can't, you can't make him a king or prevent him from being a king, because he's, he's, he already is, right? Nathaniel says, thou art the king of Israel. He, he is. Now, he hasn't been uh, crowned, coronated, as it were, but he's like David, who Samuel... Samuel anointed him, and so Jesus Christ gets anointed and conducts his ministry, awaiting the coronation when he goes to the right hand of the Father. But he already is king, basically. So you can't do either of these things. But my point is, as Christ is king, when you look at it, let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. It's not to use him, and of course it's not to kill him, but it is to enjoy him, to serve him, to love him. This is my king. Look at my king. What's your king like? This is my king. Some people in 2023, they will make all sorts of things their king. They will make money their sovereign, and it will disappoint them. They will make relationships, human relationships, their sovereign, or jobs and employment and other ambitions, 
and it will cause them great sorrow. They will make health their ambition, only to see it whisk away. All sorts of things they will crown and say, this is the purpose of my existence. And they'll be sad at the end, but not, not the children of Zion, who are joyful in their king. Joyful in their king. Beloved, beloved, you have one king. Do not accept the challengers. Do not accept the substitutes. They come in all shapes and sizes. They come in insidious ways, trying to creep in under your skin, trying to control your life, trying to say, give more attention here. This is an important thing to do. But it's wanting your affections. It's wanting your heart. It's desiring your loyalty. And I say to you, watch it. Watch it. Watch it. You, you are loyal to one. And if you, if you understand your loyalty is to Jesus Christ and you give yourself entirely to Jesus Christ, that will strengthen that joy in your heart because every day he will be the same. Because he's serving you every day. He is. And all those other things that, 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 that claim they're going to benefit you feel at the same time Jesus is at the right hand of the Father ever living to intercede for you. Working constantly for your good, for God's glory, there should be no challenger. So, impregnable joy. That's, that's, you want to take the things that are true, the unchanging things, and say, this is the ground of my joy. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them be joyful in their king. Let you be joyful in your king. That's what it's calling you to. Be joyful in your king. Be joyful in your king. Oh, preacher, you've no idea what I'm facing. No, I, that may be true. But be joyful in your king. Be joyful in your king. There are things that aren't changing about you. You're loved by God. You're cared for with a superintendence you can't even begin to understand. You're being led and guided and helped and provided for and encouraged and strengthened. And your king, your king knows. So this year, this year may bring disturbing headlines, perplexing circumstances, unsettling providences, worsening health, fatiguing children, diminishing resources, painful misunderstandings, prejudicial decisions, challenging responsibilities, but let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. When you write it over somewhere you can see it. Melanie was saying to me weeks ago, weeks ago she said, she said you, you should make it, you make a bookmark. You should do a bookmark. Well, maybe we should. But it's only as good as you looking at it and taking it to heart. Maybe you would. But you see, and I, I'm not going to take time to look at any more of this, this psalm, but you see, it's just it's peppered with, look at, look at verse 4. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. 
This is his work to do. He's not, you're not making yourself beautiful. Forget it. All right. <laughs> as far as you're, as I know, I know stages of life we try to make ourselves beautiful. And there are reasons for that. And it's warranted. And it's all good. But you're not going to impress God with your looks. Christ will make you beautiful. Trust in him. Isn't that, isn't that something that young women need to get today when they're peppered with such falsehood and filters and fakery? I mean, just, no. He will beautify you, dear daughter of the king. He, he beautifies you with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Yes, in glory. When things are going well, be joyful. Be joyful in your king. But when you're on your bed and you're wondering, what are you doing, Lord? What's going on here? I don't feel I have strength even to get up today. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their King. He will rally you again. He will see your sorrows and yet he will communicate. Just, just lift this and say, well, what, what's the king got to say? And you read it and you say, here's what he's saying. Yes, I have reason. I have reason to be joyful. I have reason to keep going. Yes. Child of God, be joyful in your king. No matter what. Again, not in what you're going to do this year. In what Christ has done. Be joyful. Be joyful. Come to this table and let it communicate to you not, not some message of what you're going to do or what Christ has already done. That's what it's saying, isn't it? This is done. It's done. Be joyful in your King. The Lord give us grace. Let's pray. As we're bowed before the Lord, may I just encourage two things, penitence and gratitude in your heart in these moments. Penitence because you do sin, you still sin, and it needs to be repented of. And maybe some of those sins are, are lurking just around the corner in your memory, they're very recent. Put them under the blood. It still avails. It's still able to cleanse you. And then gratitude. To be thankful. Thankful you're His. Thankful He's taken you to be His. Lord, help us, help us, help us please to be made strong by what Christ has done. Made strong by these unchanging truths. And so we pray for more grace, more, more of thyself, more of what Christ shed his blood for, more understanding of what he has made us to be, of what he is continuing to do on our behalf, more of what is good. We want what you have to offer, Lord. 
and you give to us Jesus Christ. We take him in all his fullness. We embrace him by faith. And here at this table we will dine on him and eat and drink in the joy of what he's done for us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.